Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today, we're going to cover Show Your Work by Austin Kleon, a book with the tagline, 10 Ways to Share Your Creativity and Get Discovered. Chase Jarvis is the person who recommended this book in Tools of Titans. He can be found at Chase Jarvis on the tweeters and creativelive.com on the interwebs. He's one of the most commercially successful photographers in the world, having worked with small companies like Apple, Nike, and REI. He's also the CEO of Creative Live, which is an online learning platform that broadcasts live high-def classes to more than 2 million students in 200 countries. Also within Tools of Titans, you'll find that Derek Sivers is also a big fan of this book. The author of Show Your Work is Austin Cleon. He's also the author of Steal Like an Artist, uh, another great, quick, pithy book to read uh, in a similar format to, uh, to Show Your Work. He posts interesting artwork almost every day on Instagram and Twitter where he pulls different quotes by cutting up newspapers. And I wish he would just cut up all newspapers because it would make life a lot better at this point in the the news cycle. He lives in Austin, Austin, Texas, which must get really confusing uh, since his his first name is also Austin, but uh, somehow he manages and, and he seems to be getting by quite well. So I've got two quotes from this book that uh, that I enjoyed. The first one is, when you feel like you've learned whatever there is to learn from what you're doing, it's time to change course and find something new to learn so that you can move forward. The second quote is actually by uh, by someone else, but uh, he, <laughs> he puts it in this book, so I don't know if this counts. I may get... Uh, a negative point for this, but I'm going to go ahead and put it in anyway. And this one is anyone who isn't embarrassed of who they were last year probably isn't learning enough. And that is a uh, challenging and um, uh, good quote and, and something uh, that would be good to live by. So uh, Jason, what, what were your favorites? Yeah. And I'm going to challenge that quote by Alain de Botton, uh in that, uh, I'm going to challenge it actually with something that, uh, that Austin Cleon himself said in this book, which, you know, he was encouraging, uh, he's encouraging people to be an amateur. This is, uh, one of the, one of the primary lessons in the first, uh, in the first chapter. And he says, you know, all of us, none of us live really long enough. He quotes, you know, Charlie Chaplin, we don't live long enough to be anything other than amateurs, right? All of it. That's all of us. Any, any, all any of us are amateurs. We don't live long enough to be anything else. And then he says this is the great thing about about amateurs is amateurs are not afraid to make mistakes or look ridiculous in public. Well, if you're not afraid to make mistakes or look ridiculous in public, then you're not going to be embarrassed. Of so all. I'll take I'll take negative two points. Yeah, yeah, but no, I mean I think the principle of the of the um of the of that one is is good enough, you know, in in principle. But you know, I'm not embarrassed of who I was. 15 years ago, let alone a year ago. It's, it's who I was. But then again, I'm pretty much not, I, I'm about impossible to embarrass. So there's, there's not too many things that embarrass you. No, <laughs> as you know, going all the way back to a uh, uh, bachelor party and things like this, where uh, things, uh, yeah, there's not, there's not a whole lot that, that gets embarrassing for me. So that one doesn't work exactly as it's written, but I think it's again, a really good quote. 
that that hits a lot of the things that this book gets about. I have also a couple quotes here that uh, stuck out uh, to me. One was, he said, people often ask me, how do you find time for all of this? And I answer, I look for it. That's... That's a pretty pretty good quote. And it gets back to everybody has the same amount of time really available to them. Now, some people, once you, if you're born to more money, money allows you to basically buy more time, you know, in, in the day to day because you don't have to do certain things. Uh, you, you can you can find ways, though, to to do a lot more than you realize if you clear out all the other stuff in life that might seem like you know well that's just what that's just what everybody does well as he says in the as he finishes this quote he says you find time the same place you find spare change in the nooks and crannies you find it in the cracks between the big stuff your commute your lunch break the few hours after your kids go to bed you might have to miss an episode of your favorite tv show you might have to miss an hour of sleep but you can find the time if you look for it I like to work while the world is sleeping and share while the world is at work. And that's I, cool. That's just like that. that's just a really really good quote where he he gets at I think the biggest excuse that we all and 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 I'm including myself here, I'm including uh, every every listener here, regardless of how efficient we are, regardless of how successful we are, pretty much the first uh excuse that everybody uses is, oh, you know, I'm so busy. And and, and actually, that becomes kind of a, a humble brag, right? How's mm-hmm. it going? Oh, uh, well, you know, really busy, man. Just 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 grinding, just so busy. It's it's like the, the humble brag of the 21st century, right? Oh, well, man, I'm just, I, I can't get, can't do anything these days because I'm so busy. Well, in the classic response, well, that's better than the alternative, right? Right. Right. But the thing is, and, and I think this book and, and if some of the others that we've been reading lately put the lie to that, that, you know, a lot of times yeah. busyness is the is the easy alternative to trying to do something meaningful, which which oftentimes takes clearing out all the stuff that would make us busy. And, and, and this is something I'm having to really grapple with myself. And, 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 well, and one of the key points, I think, to the four hour work week. And the challenge in Tools of Titans as well, where um, his name is escaping me right now, but uh, he says, if you have a 10-year goal, try to get it done in six months, or what's keeping you from getting, getting it done in six months? So just that, that mentality of, of trying to use time, time well. And, and to your favorite first quote there, I often say, you make time for what you want to do. And so I think also the, well, I don't have time to do that is also uh, a way of saying in a nice way to somebody, well, I don't want to do that. Right. Well, um, and, and, but the thing is we lie to, to ourselves about that, right? I mean, yeah. that we, we say, yeah. oh, well, I don't have time for it. And what it really means, again, what you're, what you're getting at here, what it really means is I don't value that enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a really different way. Like, I think actually we should... This is a really interesting challenge to try to apply, right? That, say, for the next month, every time you have to say, well, you know, I just, I, sorry, I, I don't have time for that. Instead of saying, I don't have time for that, you actually have to say, sorry, I, I just don't value that enough. <laughs> it's a good challenge. It, you know, I may, I may try to do this because 
you know, the reality is we can make time for what we what we really truly value. There, there are ways of doing it. There 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 are uh, all sorts of sacrifices that we can make if it's something that we really value. But sorry, I just don't I don't value that enough to sacrifice this other thing that I'm going to be doing during that time. I, I really have to get through the uh, the House of Cards binge watching that I need to do. And so I just don't value that enough to do something, you know, other than that. Right. Yeah. No. So that's one quote. The second quote has to do with, uh, more of this, uh, this question of sort of finding your niche, finding what you, you know, what you can, what you can contribute. And, and I think his advice here is really good. It's something that, in my experience, I've found to be, to be true. And there's a lot of stuff in this book that, again, from experience, I think he's, he's absolutely right. But this one really rung true. Be on the lookout for voids that you can fill with your own efforts, no matter how bad they are at first. Don't worry for now how you'll make money or, or career off of it. Forget about being an expert or a professional and wear your amateurism, your heart, your love on your sleeve. Share what you love and the people who love the same things will find you. And then he gets to, you know, if you find enough people who share your passion for something, then your passion actually can give you the chance to become an expert on it. And if there are other people out there who share that passion and then you become a valued voice or, or p- participant in that community, then there are ways of monetizing that. And so mm-hmm. suddenly you find that you're able to do something that you wouldn't have imagined that you would have been able to do because you created an audience by not by being a, by being an expert or by being but by being, you know, by being available, by being someone who who looked for a void that you could fill with your own efforts and even if your efforts weren't going to be any good at first, you found that void and you said, somebody could, somebody could to- totally do this better and then commit to doing that. And again, where do you find the time to do it? Well, you make it. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that you really value, that you really love, that's really you know, in your heart, then you find, you find a way to, to participate in that community, find a way to share, find a way to fill a void. And then eventually... The, the, the thing that happens from that is that you become valuable. And, and I think that one of the real values of this book is, is in that transition, right? It's in uh, basically understanding the difference between trying to do something as a career where you make money versus approaching everything in life from the other angle, which is how can I contribute? How can I share? How can I fill voids to, to bring value to other people's lives? And then once I'm actually bringing surplus value to people, that's actually going to return to me in some way as livelihood. And that's something, you know, Steve Jobs used to talk about all the time is, you know, well, we're not out to try to make products that make money. We're trying to out to we're out to make, to try to make products that do that, that that solve problems that people don't even know they have, so that mm-hmm. this product can create value. Stuff that we you know stuff that I really wish existed. I want to make that, and then if I if I'm able to do that, then other people will be there that wish it that that realize that they'd wished it that it existed, and now they're willing to pay money for it. But as soon as money becomes the the driving factor for things, you lose that creative edge. You lose the passion to actually create value. That's what actually 
facilitates bringing value back to yourself in terms of money. So I, I think that that that's one of the the really nice things about this book is how it how it brings that brings that that angle of things, an angle of doing work uh, out of this. And it's hard because it takes that investment up front to be able to create that value, which means you have to sacrifice quite a bit early on. But mm-hmm. th- those are my two favorite quotes. Yeah, I like that. And I, I had a meeting yesterday with a client and we were talking about uh, adding new content to their to their website and they were just racking their brains. You know, how do we do this? What, what are we going to think to write about? And I just said, just think about helping people. And, and it just clicked for them by saying that, you know, that it's, it's not about trying to write these amazing articles and, and, and try to come up with topics that people are going to like. It's just, just help people. If you help people, you're going to get an audience. And uh, I think that ties in, ties in with what you are, you're saying. So we'll, we'll head off into the next section here of overview and our initial reactions. Um, my initial reaction, I just, I love these short kind of books. Um, and having read Steal Like an Artist, uh, Austin's other book, he's, he's really good at capturing the time that we live in. So there's some unique aspects, uh, even of what you talked about, of, of kind of the long tail of you having an interest and in being able to find an audience for that interest or, or other like-minded people online. His ability to take these, these things going on, kind of like Kevin Kelly with The Inevitable, to take these things going on and then give you permission to enter into that and take advantage of, of these changes online. Uh, so this book of, of show your work, you know, just encouraging you to, to, to be out there to, to share. And, and we'll, we'll get a lot uh, into that a lot deeper in this, this episode, but um, he, he does a great job of, of capturing the, the period of time with all of its changes and then writing about it in an actionable and easily understood format. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I think that one of the nice things about this book, again, like you pointed out, is, is that it is so pithy and it's such an easy read, but it's deceptively profound in a lot of these lessons uh, in terms of, of how the world works and how the creative process works and how you can be, again, how you can create value for people. And to me, there's something uh, that that makes this book a valuable read for a lot of people who might not necessarily expect it to be a valuable read going in. I was I was more questionable. Like I I went into this book not without really high expectations, to be totally honest. And and I thought the book uh, exceeded my expectations because. Yeah, I had had pretty high expectations just because uh, Steel Like an Artist was such a good, good book. Yeah, that title um, I would have I would have probably expected more of because it's more 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 along my my uh, uh, the, the the title s- speaks to me just a little bit more. Yeah, but yeah, I didn't I was not familiar with that book and and I didn't have high expectations for this book, but it, it really exceeded what expectations I had. Yeah, yeah. Well, getting into the the nitty gritty. First off, I, I've just really enjoyed the, this whole project and, and seeing how a lot of these books connect with another with with each other. And on the very first page, we have uh, <laughs> what I hate talking about self promotion. Comedian Steve Martin famously dodged these questions with the advice: "Be so good they can't ignore you." So the the previous book in in our uh, Books of Titans was the Steve Martin book, and we we realized that that quote wasn't in the uh, the book. And, and Austin doesn't say it is, but but. Um, just that tie in. And then throughout this book, we see a lot of connections, whether it's, um, 
uh, referring to Kevin Kelly or uh, some ideas that that go along with the 10,000-hour rule in, in Outliers. So that was cool to see all that. Um, one of the other main things that, that Jason's already that Jason you've already mentioned is is this idea of the amateur, and Kevin Kelly hits on that in the inevitable. But um, but that we're all of these changes, all of these these new ways of uh, communicating, of of being able to show our work, it's turning turning us into amateurs. And the way Kevin Kelly talked about it is, you know, if you're not if you're not approaching your phone um, and the new technologies on your phone or your computer with with the mindset of, of an amateur, you're going to get you're going to fall behind very quickly because it you have to have that mentality going into these things because things are changing so rapidly. And when he was talking, when Austin was talking about this in the book, it made me think of a podcast that, that I used to listen to. And I, I don't listen to it anymore, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it, it was a podcast called Listen Money Matters. And it was two guys uh, it, when it started. Now, now it's a completely different uh, how they have it set up. But at the beginning, it was two guys that didn't know anything about finances. And all they would do is interview people who were who were knowledgeable about different aspects of, of finance. So instead of listening to a podcast of a, of a brilliant finance person who's, who's worked in the industry for 30, 40 years, uh, I, I, I almost got more out of this podcast than any other finance podcast where you're just listening to two guys learn as they go. And, and it was kind of where I was at that time. I, I was, I was, learning about different investments and concepts and all this sort of thing. So listening to these guys talk about it from that, that point of view was, was really cool. And, and from that amateur point of view, and it just, it, it drives this point home that you don't have to necessarily start things these days as a professional or, or being at the top of the game to be able to, to make an impact. You can go in at the bottom level and, and just go as you're learning and people will be intrigued even by that because they're at that same point and, and you can help them along. And this gets into a, an idea that Lewis hits on later in the book and uh, and we can talk about later, but uh, I, I, I love that aspect of it. it. It just really kind of gets your mind thinking of what are some things that I want to learn about that I could, I could even share while I'm learning about those things and that could even draw other people and we, we all kind of learn together. Yeah, well, and you you realize how many, I mean, if you actually think, if you look at the people who are high paid in various industries, so many times, it's shocking, actually, how many of these people, first of all, I mean, it's frustrating to me at many times that how many of these people are utterly incompetent, but how many of these people uh, actually came out, not of not of being a a professional or having gone to school for whatever they're doing, but they, they got noticed somehow by either some ridiculous shenanigans or just by being a part of the tribe long enough to actually become one of the leaders. And now they're getting paid on, on, on all sorts of things. I mean, one example, and it's a, uh, uh, an example of, of a person that I really don't like his content all that much, but he's made millions of dollars in sports media is Clay Travis. This guy, he, he, he does the outkick the coverage blog or he did the outkick the coverage blog, which then later on, uh, got, it's been bought by Fox sports and you know, all these other things. But here's the thing. Clay Travis didn't start out as a, as a, as a sports writer. 
really isn't a sports writer still, but, you know, didn't start out as a sports commentator. Really, what he was is he was a lawyer who got frustrated because he uh, couldn't get an NFL Sunday ticket in the Virgin Islands, where he, the U.S. Virgin Islands, where he was living. So on his personal blog, he explained that he was going on a pudding strike, eating nothing but pudding with the goal of forcing DirecTV <laughs> to carry the package in the Virgin Islands. And he chronicled his pudding strike for 50 days and received a tremendous amount of attention for his pudding strike because he was passionate about the NFL and wanted NFL Sunday ticket from DirecTV. Here's the kicker. It failed. DirecTV didn't do anything out of the put, you know, the pudding strike did nothing except 50 days later when the pudding strike ended, he received, he had received all this media attention and by the next year was writing online for CBS sports because he created, did he also receive, did he also receive diabetes? <laughs> yeah. Depends on what pudding he was eating, I guess. But he wound up uh, writing for CBS sports the next year unpaid. And then in 2006, he started doing his own thing and wound up. And now the guys made millions on this. And why did he make millions? He made millions because he went on a 50 day pudding strike and publicized it. And now the guy has a radio show. He has, you know, he, he, he created the Outkick the Coverage blog, which then gets acquired by, uh, uh, by, by Fox Sports and becomes a part of that uh, online empire. And, I mean, I just look at this and I'm like, first of all, the guy, the guy rarely has, you know, takes that I think are worth sharing. I do my best to avoid sharing his stuff largely because I, I, don't, I don't like most of it. But the reality is, that guy made millions of dollars just by doing what Austin Kleon is talking about in this book. He found a niche, created his own brand online through a, the, the wildest thing you could imagine, and somehow managed to transfer that. Some, I guess some people found enough value in his voice that he's made a lot of money as, a, as, as one of the leaders of that, of that industry. So this gets right to... I, I think Cleon is 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 sort of pulling away the curtain here in how this actually works in you know creating and and being an amateur and being a an unabashed unashamed amateur willing to do stuff that is going to get you uh, is, is going to create value for someone that's willing that, that you're sharing enough online and sharing enough in your community that you begin that you begin to have a voice that that people are going to. Uh, to turn to and and yeah yeah it's that's an exact it's an example if that guy can can do that (laughs) (laughs) well i think this ties in nicely with with, uh with something i see that you you got uh of the from the lewis quote if you if you want to go into that oh yeah 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 so uh actually this this gets back to a couple things one is uh this is this is the um uh the idea that he talks about with, with amateurism, one of the things about being an amateur is that it's actually advantageous in many ways to constantly be an amateur, to actually remind yourself of what it is to be an amateur, even once you become a professional, because when you are an amateur, you actually can communicate with other amateurs because you may not know the first thing about how things actually work, but you know how amateurs think they work. (laughs) Right. And so, 
you know, he, he quotes C.S. Lewis on, on, on the, to, to uh, elucidate this principle. And, and Lewis once wrote, it often happens that two schoolboys can solve difficulties in their work for one another better than the master can. The fellow, hu- the fellow pupil can help more than the master because he knows less. The difficulty we want him to explain is one he's recently met. The expert met it so long ago that he's forgotten. And that is really, really important. And, and I, had put, I, I put a marginal note in here where I'd said the truly great experts don't forget the, the, the problems. They don't forget the difficulties. The truly great experts remember the steps Remember the problems that they had and remember the steps to, to solve them and can help simplify for those coming behind them. And that to me, again, that's, that's where you find your voids. And, and this tied into one other thing that I really liked about this. And it's something that, you know, I've got a bunch of old notebooks from years past and I'm, I've not been as good about keeping some notebooks, although I, a lot of it's, uh, I, 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 anytime I have an idea, I, I'm pretty disciplined about getting it into either Simple Note or Evernote. Uh, and then, you know, eventually going back and trying to, to organize those is, is an important thing. But he says, you know, it's important to keep notebooks, important to chronicle your ideas and all this. And then he steps back and says, and this is the thing that I think most people who do a lot of note taking or journaling and all that don't do. As he says, and this is a very, very valuable thing, I think. But the thing about keeping notebooks is that you have to revisit them in order to make the most out of them. You have to flip back through old ideas to see what you've been thinking. And to me, that, that does a couple things. One is you see your growth, which can be a little embarrassing, perhaps. Like, oh, wow, I thought that five years ago. Oh, geez, now I've learned. But here's the thing. Five years ago, you'd forgotten that you'd didn't know that like you'd forgotten that you didn't know that five years ago guess what you just located you found a void you found mm-hmm. something that you've learned over five years that five years ago you didn't learn you hadn't learned you didn't know and five years ago you wanted to know it enough that over those five years you've learned it well when you revisit the old notebook and you find out oh wow i thought that about this but i was totally wrong and now I get it. You've found a void. You've found something that you can actually contribute to someone out there who's probably where you were five years ago. And now the question is, can you fill that void in a way that's going to explain it to that person who's five years behind you? Mm-hmm. And that to me is, again, that's a great lesson from this book and, and how he explains that process and thinking about ways of, of, uh, of, cre- of again, putting yourself in position to create value. Yeah. One, one, one big idea I got from this book is, so the title is Show Your Work. And before I read the book, and I guess just a, a mentality I have is, okay, I show my work. That means I show the end product. <laughs> I show at the very end. And throughout the book, he says, no, with, with the tools we have now, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever, show the entire process. If, if, uh, so one of my clients, she takes, uh, she takes wedding dresses that perhaps the mother wore in her wedding and the daughter, if the daughter wants to wear it in, in her wedding, she'll rework the dress for the daughter. And then after the daughter wears it, she'll then make it into an evening dress that, uh, instead of just putting the wedding dress up on a, a shelf the rest of your life, you could wear this evening dress out. 
And I said, you should, you should show the entire process of you make, you know, rearranging this dress. Don't just show the final version of the dress. People would be really interested to see your process for drawing out what you're going to do from the original dress to the new dress, uh, showing every single day, just one photo of what you're doing. And that's one thing he, he, he suggests in the book show every single day, put something up there, put something out there for people to see and, Sometimes it's hard for us to see. Like I sit at a computer every day, so it's not, <laughs> you know, do I just take a photo of my keyboard and show that? Hey, this is uh, this is what I've been doing all day, typing away in this. But you know, to to really think through it, and what are what are some different things I could share on a on a daily basis from my work? And I thought that was one of the most valuable pieces of this book. Of not don't just show the end product, but show the process, and people are very interested in the process. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, my dad and I, you know, we did TV years ago. And and one of the things that we've always been really interested in is not just watching a movie or watching a TV show or something, but then we love getting, getting a look at a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff and okay. Oh, they had the cameras set up here. Oh, they did it this way with Steadicam. It's the pro like I'm fascinated by the process of this stuff. And we're not the only people who are like that, right? There's lots mm-hmm. of, there's a big market for that. And the thing is, you're, you're talking about that wedding dress stuff. When someone sees the artistry that she's putting into that kind of thing, someone Googles or finds her because, you know, it's been Pinterested or something, someone, oh, this is how this person did it. When someone sees the artistry or sees the expertise behind it, that makes her, I think, much more likely, and this gets back to what Cleon's point is, that makes her much more someone much more likely to stumble across her stuff and go, oh, this person can really do it. Mm-hmm. It's not just the end product. It's actually showing, yeah, when I do the process, it's not just some, you know, oh, I just arrived at the at the final thing. This is this is an art. And you really want to come and 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 use my expertise if you're gonna get this done. Yeah. That's that's and the I'm, other part of that. I'm gonna say it's I don't want to use the word counterintuitive, but I'm going to say countercultural because I think it goes against our culture in the sense of the end product is clean, but we think the process to get to the end product is messy and we don't want to show the messy parts. But as you said, that that's, that's really the parts that show the expertise. That's the parts where, and, and even if it is messy, it shows that, uh, that there's a certain understanding of what you do, or at least you're learning from the messy parts into how you got to the final product. So I, that was, it, it was something I think about. I've given this book to, uh, to one of my clients and I, I suggested it to another client who, um, who uh, the, and one person I gave it to is a painter. And I gave it to him uh, because he, he just wants to show the final painting and have that be on the website. But I said, man, there, there is so much value if you were to put the whole process and how you go about picking your paint, mixing your paint, and how you uh, how you find the inspiration and how you know just every single day if you did that of the painting you're working on that would be invaluable people would learn a lot from it and it it would it would show that how truly great of an artist you are uh, through that through all the what we consider the messy the messy things. Well, and here's the other here's the other interesting thing on that is what makes art valuable. <laughs> Like what makes one painting more valuable than another or, you know, a, a so- one, one piece of music, one song suddenly become a hit versus not. 
And, you know, we like to say that, that it's, well, they're better. But the thing is, why is it then that so many painters are rejected in their own lifetime and their, their art is thought as, you know, not very valuable and then they die and for whatever reason, suddenly that painting becomes worth a fortune? What, their painting became objectively that much better after they died? Like, come on. Something changed. And uh, there's actually, and, and we'll put it in the show notes, there's a, there's a podcast uh, from The, the Money. Uh, it's an RN podcast from, uh, from Down Under, uh, where uh, they, they actually discuss this. It's a podcast called How a Hit is Made, The Economics and Psychology of Pop Culture, where they interview uh, Derek Thompson, uh, who uh, did a, uh, a book called The Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Which, uh, which was just released in February of 2017, so February of this year. Uh, and one of the things that they talked about is what the difference between, say, a hit piece of art, something that becomes a, a smash hit as, as music or a very valuable painting or whatever, and why that becomes valuable. Why, why, what, what is it that makes a hit versus something else? And the thing is, so much of it is psychological in the eye of the, of the various beholders, and the thing is, no matter how good a painter your 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 uh, the, your client or your friend is uh, there, no matter how good a painter he is, that's not going to create the value in the mind of the potential buyer that a narrative or a story that somehow attaches to that paint that that painting in someone's mind. Would make uh, would would add value. You can take you can take a song and it could be in a sublime piece of of music making, and it gets totally ignored because only say you know a few hundred people listen to it and they like it, but they don't they they don't have an emotional connection to it for any reason. And then all of a sudden, and and, and actually in this episode, it talks about the uh, one of the most. Uh, most played, and I, I wish I remembered the name of the song, but one of the most, uh, uh, one of the top two or three songs, uh, most uh, most sold songs in history, how that song was out for over a year. I think it was two or three years with almost no sales. It was a B-side of, a, of, of an album. And then it got stuck into a movie that became popular and everybody fell in love with that song because of its connection in the movie. And suddenly the song, the song sold like hotcakes. And, and this happens all the time. You know, Sixpence None the Richer. Everybody knows Kiss Me, the song Kiss mm -hmm. Me by Sixpence None the Richer, or at least everybody about our age. Well, that, nobody knew, knew who Sixpence None the Richer was until that song got onto a fairly widely, widely viewed rom-com in, you know, a summer movie. And suddenly everybody kind of identified that song as, oh, that's, it's really romantic and, and so on. And yeah, it is that. But that's sort of an artificial way of producing process, right? Of showing the narrative behind the, behind the, uh, behind the curtain and creating emotional ties. So if your friend suddenly is he's showing all of the artistry that goes into the painting, now someone has a story to tell about the painting that's up on their wall and it's that much more valuable to that person. They're probably willing to pay more money. So this is, I think, again, like you said, the counter-cultural or counterintuitive lesson of what Austin Kleon does in this book. 
Well, what's interesting too uh, in, in this line of discussion is, is um, Austin's other book, Steal Like an Artist, because his point in that book is some of the best art is where the artists have stolen from others, but they've stolen multiple ideas, combined them together into something new and fresh. And that's where the, uh, their art gets gets its notoriety and gets recognized because they've, they've combined two things that weren't combined maybe in the, in the past, uh, but or more than two. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Or kind of, in, but kind of got those ideas from and stole them from, from different artists and then, and then combined them. So, um, and actually, I don't think his argument is just that the best art or that some art does this. I think his argument is that all art is basically taking stuff that somebody else already did that already existed and just remixing it a little bit. Basically, all art is, re you know, all songs are remixes to some degree. All art is remixes of stuff that's already there. Yeah, except for the Slim Shady. He's the original Slim Shady. Well, yeah, but that's a little different. I mean, that's, yeah. And, and you can't forget about Dre either, but can't, can't. They're, 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 I mean, you have the originals there, but now that those, now that those have been done, there, there really is nothing left that, that's new. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll give you that one. <laughs> now, one other thing too, I, getting back to your thing, you said the messiness of the creative process that's something else that I liked that uh, that you brought out in talking about the messiness of the uh, of the whole process of the creative process and showing that. And that's something that Cleon really emphasizes in this book. And it, it connects to this idea that oftentimes we have this and, and it's it's spurred on by movies and, and, and just narratives about how how things come about. But we have this idea of sort of the lone genius and he fights really hard against this in this book, that you have this idea of the lone genius, the creative who, you know, basically locks himself away and uh, then at, at some moment after a while gets this eureka moment of inspiration and then suddenly the great art or the great contribution to science or the great... Uh, you know, creation of value, whatever it is, just springs fully formed from the head of Zeus, as it were, you know, then, and you get the final product there. And the reality is that that's not how the creative process works for anyone <laughs> that create, that the creative process is always messy, that it's always involving a ton of trial and especially error. And mm -hmm. the, and that the messiness of that is precisely what that actually broadcasting the messy messiness of that is actually a good part of where that value comes in. And, and one of the problems we have right now, actually in the sciences is that we don't have enough negative results that get published. We have people that, uh, that game their numbers that, you know, do P hacking and all sorts of stuff because the, uh, the, 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 the whole incent the incentives of the whole scientific process at this point in universe, in the university world and academia and all this, in research is to find significant research somehow, some way that you can present as significant and publish as I have some sort of positive result. But what really should be done is sharing the work the whole way through. So today I did this and nearly caught my lab on fire. Well, that's going to go down as a, that didn't work. So everybody else knows not to try this. 
And you know, this this these last six months, we tried this you know genetic intervention with mice, and it backfired you know badly. These sort there needs to be em- more emphasis on process with lots of things, not yeah. just uh, in 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 you know art or create the the stereotypically creative world. And if we could get to where we emphasize that more, it it would actually add more value to the. Uh, not just to the economy, but to society at large. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Now, the, the hard part is that, and this is where I ran into issues as an academic, there are times where it's a dog-eat-dog world enough in, mm-hmm. say, humanities scholarship or whatever, that if you share your idea in the wrong form, in the wrong way, let's say you use Twitter and you just tweet out, yeah, you know, so I was thinking about X thesis, someone who's better established and has more time and resources uh, and a stronger voice in that field may just take that and run with it. I know that this has happened to at least one colleague of mine, take that and run with it and publish something before you can actually get it out. So there, that's where you have to actually learn to strike the balance sometimes between guarding your idea if it's something in, in, in that kind of world, guarding it enough to ensure that that doesn't happen while still sharing it with a circle of people to, that, that are going to be able to help refine it and, and get through the messiness of that process with that. But that's something else that really stuck out about what you were talking about. Now, I know you had something in addition to, to run with here from, from there. So I've well, monologued long I mean, enough. I'm still, you said about five minutes ago, you said that you can hack your pee. <laughs> and so I'm still thinking about that. So I, well, maybe another podcast episode we can we can touch on that. But I'm I'm still stuck on that. But uh, no, no. I, I was thinking when you were talking, I was thinking about um, your earlier comment as well about movie, the movies and the and the extras that that come with them. And I was thinking on, of it on a music point of view and what are usually called the B sides. Oh yeah. And B sides are released, and then the avid fans go nuts over them because it's like. It's like these long lost tracks that have finally come out that you get access to. And, and I think that's, that's some of the idea of this thing, like uh, of, of that a thousand true fans idea. Most people are only going to want to see your finished product, but you're the, the avid fans, the people that connect around your idea, your passion. Uh, and, and Austin in this book, he says, always share your passion, share your influences. I mean, share share the things that have influenced you on the way. Uh, so like for me, Van Halen, I mean, if anything comes out Van Halen, like a, a bootleg concert from the seventies, like 79, like I'm going to listen to it. You know I mean? That, I just think that's cool, but your average person is not going to, going to care about that. But the point is if you're out there showing your work, um, there, there will be people who, who are interested in that and whatever your B sides are that you, you think might not make the cut there, there might be someone who, who is interested in that. Um, and so getting to one other thing, I really, uh, got one thing I got out of this book and, and it actually comes from a question your wife asked me, uh, over Christmas, she asked, do you, do you remember the books that you read or, or how do you remember them? And I, I was struck by that question because, um, I, I like reading, but, but it is that thing like, well, how do you, how do you remember everything you read and does it go in there and go one, one in your mind and then out right away or do some ideas stick? And one thing I thought about when she asked me that is just trying to pick one thing 
from every book I read and just do one thing. Uh, and, and a book may contain, you know, 40 different really good ideas, but if I can just take one idea from a book and, and even for this books of Titans, uh, of reading list, if I can just take one idea from each book and implement it or, or have it change how I, I view things or, or live or do different tasks, I think that's a, that's a really good, just basic goal to go for. And, um, you know, one of the main ideas from this book is, is, uh, is just showing your work and showing it on a, on a daily basis. But one other idea he had in the book that I really liked was this idea. He, he encouraged people to read obituaries because it, it puts a life into a, a, a very short format and just reading through obituaries, you, you, you kind of gain access into someone's life. What was important? Uh, what are the things that stuck out over a, a span of, of however many years? And that's something that I want to start doing. I, I got uh, I got one book after 9-11, the New York Times would, would do a biography of, of the people that were killed and it would do like uh, 15 or so a day. And I remember reading those in college and, and just really being struck by them. So that, that's even something I could start off with from this book is just revisiting that book that I bought and, and just taking, taking a, a few obituaries a day and uh, and reading through them. I thought that was a, a neat idea that, that – uh, that Austin suggested in this book. Yeah. And there's a lot, I mean, again, we could, we could talk, I think probably another hour at least, uh, on the interest on the interesting pithy statements and, and, uh, and concepts in here. There are a few others I wanted to touch, uh, touch on before we, before we wrap. Uh, but you know, I, I encourage the, the listener to go on, go ahead and, and, and buy this book and, uh, and, and go through, because I think again, getting a chance to read all this uh, together is is worth it for for those who are interested in in uh, again creating value for those around them in their life and and hopefully you know producing something that can create value in return. But um, you know, in, in line with with your B side thing, there's a statement that he made that was uh, stop worrying about how many people follow you online and start worrying about the quality of people who follow you. So this again gets back to that thousand true fans or whatever. But the thing is, if you have a group of people who's interested in your B sides and is actually going to pay to, to see those or is going to you know pay attention to those, those people will definitely buy your a work and they'll pay full price for it. But if you have just a, a few people who, you know, kind of put you on follow at some point, well, that doesn't necessarily do mean, mean anything. Right. And, and to, to that end, he, he points out the painful truth. Beware of selling the things you love. When people are asked to get out their wallets, you find out how much they really value what you do. And danged if that wow. isn't true. Right. I mean, <laughs> those of us who've done any sort of work that involves uh, subscriptions or selling albums or selling books or whatever else know full well how that works, because, you know, you would. You kind of expect, oh yeah, my friends will buy it. Actually, it turns out friends are about the last people that buy stuff. They kind of they expect you to give it to them for free. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, because they they kind of know where you're going with things or they've heard it before, they don't buy it. And you're like, well, gee, thanks for showing me yeah. how much you value what I do. Yeah. But you, you do need that secondary group, not your friends per se, but the fellow the fellow passionates that are in your tribe that are going to buy something that are going to actually find enough value in what you do to actually 
show it with their wallets. And that's a harder thing to find. And, and he gets into that, I think, again, in, in, in a very productive way. He, he frames it well in this book. Uh, and then finally, before we get back to the big picture, I loved this was one of this is my third favorite quote from the book. An amateur is an artist who supports himself with outside jobs, which enable him to paint, said artist uh, Ben Shan. A professional is someone whose wife works to enable him to paint. <laughs> and man, again, it's so true. Sure. And it gets right back to some of the outliers type stuff, right? Where if you don't have a network, if you don't have support to actually find a way to be able to make the time, to find the time to be able to do some of this, then you're never going to be a professional in that area. <laughs> Because that really oftentimes is the difference between being a professional and an amateur is having support enough for someone to share your passion enough to help you maintain that passion. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there's a lot of positives here in this book, a lot, a lot of, uh, of, of food for thought. And, and again, it gets back to uh, the, the benefit of something that's really short, really pithy, that forces you to reevaluate again what uh, sort of how you're how you're sharing, how you're in, how you're going about the kind of um, uh, entrepreneurial or creative stuff that you're that you're going through. And so for a lot of the, the people who would be listening to this podcast, I think it'd be very useful. So as we come then to back to the big picture, any conclusions here? I was just I just finished uh, one of the other books of Titans book books and uh, they, the author talks about haiku and uh, the haiku haikus and it's almost like just in passing that he mentioned it but haikus have been on my mind since since then and the haiku taking taking vast concepts and, and putting it as concise as possible into a short little piece. Uh, is a really hard thing to do, but it's so valuable and, and you, you get so much out of reading haikus. And I almost view this book like a Depends haiku. Depends on the haikus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but it's two, this book is 215 pages and about half the pages are, are images or uh, the, the newspaper type cutouts that he does or things that he's drawn, uh, words, different things like that. So you're looking at like a hundred page book that you can get through. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fairly slow reader and it, this one took me about two hours. So, and the back of the book says $11 and 95 cents. So for 12 bucks and two hours of your time, this is an unbelievably valuable book in getting you to, to put your mindset in where we are right now in terms of being able to share. And then, the benefits of sharing, not just your final work, but the whole, the process in between and knowing that there's going to be people out there who are going to be interested in that. I, I, I just think it's a, it's a no brainer. It's a, it's a book that, that you should pick up. I've, I've already given it to one of my, cl my clients and uh, have recommended it to others. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it should just be a, a quick read. It should be something also uh, like the 22 laws of marketing where it's something just kind of reference at uh, different points in the year. Yeah, this is one of those things that's probably worth revisiting on occasion. Again, like something like the 22 immutable laws or there's a number of books that I kind of have in a 
for sort of quasi regular rotation just because I, I value them. Uh, and you know, this is one that for a lot of people, I think would be that the, the kind of thing to revisit, you know, I, I don't know that I'd do it yearly, but it's uh it's something to revisit periodically. Uh, and again, you know, in terms of big picture, I mean, there's a lot of really important concepts here. I mean, I really liked his idea of stock and flow where, you know, this again is interacting to some degree with the flow concept that Kevin Kelly uh, talks about where you have uh, the, the flow is this um, it's the, you know, the Twitter stream. It's, it's where everything is, is moving really fast. And, uh, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it, everything's changing all the time and you have to be willing to sort of be in the flow in order to share. You have to actually be willing to, um, uh, and, and he's adapting this, by the way, uh, he says from uh, writer Robin Sloan, you know, it's, it's the posts and the tweets and all that. And, and you have to participate in that. It's the updates that remind people you exist, he says. Wait, did he, did, did he adapt it or steal it? Well, that's an open question, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, this is the... Um, this is basically where he goes. You know, the, the, the flow is the feed. You have to remind people that you exist. You have to be a part of the part of that feed. But mm -hmm. then in order to actually create value, you have to actually create stock. That's the durable stuff. That's the evergreen stuff. As, uh, as uh, Robin Sloan puts it, and he quotes Robin Sloan here, it's the content you produce that's as interesting in two months or two years as it is today. It's what people discover via search. It's what spreads slowly but surely building fans over time. And the magic formula, of course, is to maintain your flow so that you're doing something kind of on the daily basis and sharing consistently while actually working on your stock in the background. It's a great concept, mm. right? And, and there are different ways to go about that, but that is a really valuable concept to think about. And, and I would actually add to that that, in it, that, that, the next, that one of the steps of that magic formula, one of the ingredients of that magic formula is to actually use the flow to build your stock. So it's not just maintaining your flow while working on your stock in the background. Ideally, and it depends on what you do, on how, that, how it can allow it. But ideally, you actually work on your stock while, while, while in integrating that with, the, with what you're putting out in the flow. So you, you, you know, if you're a writer, you put out a few sentences or you put out some sort of idea or whatever into the into the flow that's actually from what you've been working on in the stock. And, and this is the idea that, again, he gets into throughout the book. And, and I thought, oh, and then, no, wedding, wedding dress. Right. Example too, from before. Like, yeah, exactly. The whole, the whole thing. Exactly. So you're reminding people in the flow, but the actual, that what you're doing in the process is actually building long-term value more than anything else. Uh, mm -hmm. And then his idea, I, I think the basic thesis of this book is pretty simple be generous not selfish <laughs> right so if you're generous he says you're gonna get you're gonna get generosity back right he you know over and over and over again you have this idea that he keeps coming back to that uh there's this quote where he says somehow the more you give away the more comes back to you well yeah and, and that is a truth worth repeating over and over and over again. You give away and more comes back. 
precisely because you've become an open node, as he talks about. You can't just be someone who's going to try to, uh, you know, put out your own stuff and not pay attention to others. You want to be the person that actually is passing along stuff and becomes a valued node in the larger network. And then people will start paying attention to what you actually have to give. So give and it will be given to you and selfishness hurts in the long run. And then, of course, he's got the little proviso. Well, you have to be as generous as you can, but selfish enough to get your work done. (laughs) So you have to actually make space for what you value. But outside of that, be as generous as possible with everything else. And that is a great lesson. I think it's I think that's where we can that's worth leaving off on. And the book really riffs off that idea over and over and over again in ways that I think are are worth worth thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, we need we need a mic drop uh, noise. Yeah, it's too bad we can't do uh, animated GIFs. And yes, it's GIF <laughs> graphical, not graphical. It would be interesting if it was giraffical, but there are no giraffes uh, involved here unless it's a giraffe GIF. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap. Before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along at booksoftitans.com. And you can ping us on Twitter, Instagram, at Books of Titans. And you can, of course, subscribe to this podcast. Find all of our past iTunes through Apple uh, Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, Stitcher, whatever your podcast manager of choice is. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to give us five-star ratings uh, and reviews and share your favorite episodes however you, you, you can with, with friends. Again, share not just your work, but share our work. And uh, be we'll, generous. Yeah, be Not generous. Selfish. Don't be selfish, please. Share. Uh, we'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rostin. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep reading, keep improving, and keep it real. I made this.